0: This is Book TV's AfterWords podcast. This week, The Wall Street Journal's Gerald Seib discusses how the conservative movement has evolved since Ronald Reagan. He's interviewed by Washington Post columnist Karen Tumulty.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today for our conversation with Jerry Seib about his terrific new book. We should have seen it coming. Um, And Jerry, I'd like to start with what was my personal favorite moment in the book, which is the first meeting between Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, who would become a very influential political strategist in his world, where he explains to Trump that he cannot, if he's thinking of running for president, can't do it as a traditional Republican. Can, can you describe this scene?
0: Sure. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me. Um, I was fascinated by that anecdote, too, because I had no sense of this. But one of the things you have to remember is that Donald Trump did not come as a bolt out of the blue. He'd been thinking for years about running for president, but he wasn't quite sure how. And he didn't really have an identity. Sometimes he was a Democrat. Sometimes he was a Republican. Sometimes he was an independent. He flirted with the idea of running in Ross Perot's Reform Party at one point. But by 2012, he was getting serious about it. And uh, David Bossie, who's a conservative activist, um, hardline conservative activist, was a friend of Donald Trump's, and he decided to talk to him about running for president. And he took his friend, Steve Bannon, who did not know Donald Trump at that point, up to New York to a meeting at Trump Tower to talk about this possibility. If Donald Trump's going to run as an outsider, how would he do it? David Bossy sits down uh, with Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and says, well, here's the way you run as a traditional Reagan Republican, which was kind of the way almost all Republicans ran at that point. And Steve Bannon speaks up and says something different. He says, that's not gonna work anymore. You, if you're going to run, you need to run as a populist. And he invoked Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot um, and, and basically said, there's a new populist mood in the country. And Donald Trump looks at Steve Bannon, at least as Steve Bannon, tells the story and says, you're right, that's what I am. I'm a popularist, not a populist, but a popularist. And he kind of got the terminology mangled. But Steve Bannon concludes later, you know, he's right. If he's going to run, it's going to be as a popularist to take populism, make it popular and make it all about him. And then, of course, he doesn't decide to run in 2012. But four years later, that's exactly what he does. And in the meantime, between 2012 and 2016, he actually starts to hone that populist message, and I think there are a lot of starting points for the Trump uh, revolution, if you will. That's at least one of the more intriguing ones.
1: I know it's uh, it, it it really is from the very beginning with Trump. It has been all about the ratings, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, very much so. You know, it is a. Um, he does not have an ideology. You know, I I interviewed Newt Gingrich uh, for the book a couple of times, and and Newt Gingrich is is fascinating and um, has a lot of insights into this period. The the, the book tells the the story of a 40-year period of the conservative revolution from Ronald Reagan really in 1979 when he starts to run for president to Donald Trump's arrival and where we are today. And Newt Gingrich has a lot of insights into that whole period. Um, You know, one of the things he said to me, though, is that... um, Donald Trump is not a conservative. Uh, he's an anti-liberal, and he thinks a lot of liberal, you know, thinking is nonsense. But he doesn't have a philosophy. He doesn't read the National Review, which is kind of the Bible of modern day conservatism. Um, he's an instinct player. He and it is about him, uh, and that's all fine with his supporters. And that's one of the things we learned in 2016. You don't have to be a traditional conservative. You don't even have to have an ideology. What you're against. Is at this point in our political history as important as what you're for.
1: So, one thing that makes this really different from so many other political books is that there's also an autobiographical thread that, that goes through it. And even the title, you should have seen it coming as, you know, first person plural. Yeah. What, how did you come up with this title and, and what were you attempting to do with this?
0: Well, that's interesting because I, it was not my plan. Uh, you know, you, you're a journalist, Karen, I'm a journalist. You, to, to, to think about something in the first person is exceptionally uncomfortable. You know, it's not what I intended to do. But when I got into this project, it was really an attempt to explain, as the title suggests, where did Donald Trump come from? And I got very interested in the starting point. And the starting point, I decided, really was 1979, when the Carter presidency kind of collapses. Uh, Carter gives the malaise speech, kind of throws up his hands and says, we're in terrible trouble here. And the country is then prepared to turn to Ronald Reagan, who wins the presidency in 1980. And I think that began a four-decade period of um, conservative influence in in the country's political system. I think the conservative movement was both through that 40-year period, the most interesting and perhaps the most powerful political movement of the times. And so I I decided that that was the story I was going to tell, uh, was the story of how the conservative movement rose to prominence and power under Ronald Reagan, yet somehow evolved to picking Donald Trump to be the standard bearer by 2016. Um, And when I talked with uh, my editor at Random House about it. He said basically, well, that's the, that's the arc of your career, isn't it? And it's true. I, came, I arrived in Washington to cover Washington for the Wall Street Journal in 1980, in the spring of 1980. Um, and then I've been kind of following this story ever since. And he said, the editor at Random House said to me, well, you should put yourself in the book. You should you, you witnessed a lot of this that you're going to write about. You should tell us what it was like to be there. And so that's, what, that's how that came about. It wasn't my idea, um, but, you know, once, once I accepted the idea, it did seem like a good way to sort of insert myself occasionally in the story by saying, I saw this convention, here's what it felt like, or I interviewed uh, Bill Clinton at that point, and this is what it sounded like. Um, and I hope it's not too intrusive. Um, I hope it humanizes the story a little bit. But as I said, it's not a natural or comfortable place for a journalist to land.
1: So let's talk about 1980. Um, Ronald Reagan represented a number of things. He he did represent very traditional conservative principles, free trade, smaller government, stronger military. He was in some ways an internationalist, but he also comes along with this sort of optimistic, upbeat view of the world, and something that the country. After Jimmy Carter and the, the the period you write about the the, the malays period it 's a shot of self confidence that that the country really needs at that moment
0: yeah, and, and people uh, forget i certainly remembered because it was like one of the formative memories of my political consciousness in some ways that by one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine people were saying the presidency is too big a job for any one person to handle. Maybe we need to split it in two and have a domestic policy and a foreign policy president. That's how beleaguered the Carter White House was at that point. And you're right, Ronald Reagan walked through the door and he said explicitly, this is nonsense, Um, this is America, we can do this, let's pull ourselves together here and move forward. That was the attitude. The philosophy was, was conservative and it was very conservative. In 1976, just four years earlier, Ronald Reagan tried to take the nomination away from Gerald Ford in the Republican party and the party decided and the country really thought, he's too conservative, that's too far out there. But by 1980, he hadn't, Ronald Reagan hadn't moved, but the country was ready for it. And it had much, as much to do with Carter's failure as Reagan's success, but there you have it. But what really happened in 1980 that I didn't appreciate until I did the book was that Ronald Reagan took a basic kind of core message that he had developed for years and expanded it and fleshed it out. So how did that happen? Well, first of all, his economic philosophy became a little clearer because he took supply side economics from Jack Kemp and said basically, I'm just not for balancing the budget, I'm for a big tax cut that will that will spur the economy. So he had a conservative message that suddenly had a little more oomph to it. And then he united with the religious conservatives and people again forget that hadn't happened. That that was a revolutionary idea that people in the evangelical movement would get out of the churches and into the political movement. That had not really happened before, certainly not on this scale. And Ronald Reagan went to them and they came to Ronald Reagan and they linked arms. And that was the second leg of the the stool. You had economic conservatives and social religious conservatives. And then he made common cause with the neoconservatives, the hawkish Democrats in foreign policy who were very anti-Soviet, very much cold warriors. And he brought them into the coalition. And that's where the, the, the kind of anti-communism that held this group together for so many years kind of pr- provided the glue that kept it all together. And what Ronald Reagan did in 1980 was he put all those three elements together and created a coalition. And suddenly there wasn't just a conservative message, there was a fully formed conservative platform. And that's what Reagan brought to the table in 1980.
1: Although it isn't entirely clear that at the beginning that it's going to succeed. He gets through these massive tax cuts, this, his economic program. But then the next thing that happens is he gets hit by a big recession and has to then pull back on, on a lot, some of the economic policies that he had implemented in his first year so
0: what does that do to the movement? Well, that's, that's a it's a good point, and it's often forgotten now in the mythology of Reagan. Oh, he cut taxes and everything came back to life. Well, that wasn't true at all. There was a giant tax cut in 1981, his first year in office. It was almost exactly what he had asked for. It was considered dangerous and revolutionary, and it didn't work right away. I mean, the, the deficit exploded. Republicans were like you know, crazy nervous with what had happened. The, re- the recession uh, continued, the economy was going down. This looked like it might be for a while, a colossal failure. Um, and in fact, so much so that in 1982, Republicans, more conventional conservatives led by among others, Bob Dole and Howard Baker, um, pushed this, uh, pushed through Congress a, uh, a tax bill that took back some of those tax cuts because they were so worried about the deficits that were opening up. And then eventually the combination of uh, deficit spending, frankly, because the government hadn't been cut much and the tax cuts finally kicked in. And by 1982, things started to take off. But there was a period in which it looked as if this might be a, a riverboat gamble as Howard Baker referred to it, that wasn't going to work. A riverboat gamble that would have gone bust. And it was not an instant success by any stretch of the imagination.
1: You also write um, about how at this time there was sort of a scaffolding, and infrastructure being built so that Reaganism would outlast Reagan. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that, the, you know, sort of uh, those those who were traveling with him on this road and, and the establishment of, you know, think tanks and outside organizations
0: yeah, it, it, this is, again, Karen, as you know, when you do a book, you get the chance to look through the rearview mirror and things are suddenly clearer that way than they are looking at the front windshield sometimes. And this is one of the things that I didn't appreciate at the time. You know, I lived through it, but it ha- happened so incrementally that I didn't really grasp it. When you go back and look, you realize that one of the things that happened in in the first Reagan term in particular, but all through the Reagan years, really was the construction of a conservative infrastructure that could support the Reagan revolution. And it didn't really exist. Liberals kind of had a an infrastructure, you know, think tanks and um, networks with supporters and uh, m- money organization activists uh, all through the, the New Deal era and beyond that supported what they were doing. Conservatives didn't have that. And they sort of created it. And so it took various forms. It took the form of, say, for example, Grover Norquist's Americans for Tax Reform, a new organization created at the behest, by the way, of the Reagan White House, which wanted a group out there in society somewhere to support our tax cutting uh, regimen and to lend some firepower from outside to support what we're doing. So that gets created. You have GOPAC, which was a very sleepy, little uh, organization that tried to recruit Republicans to run for state legislature lo- state legislatures. Newt Gingrich takes it over and puts it on steroids, and all of a sudden you have a giant nationwide uh, farm team of Republican conservatives being developed in state uh, level offices, governorships, um, and House races, and they're all being fueled by Newt Gingrich's ideas.
1: Can I just interrupt and describe the technology by which (laughs) they are doing this? Because, I mean, I have thought, have long thought that that um, the happiest coincidence in Newt Gingrich's entire political career was the fact that he and the C-SPAN cameras arrived in the House right. chamber at right. practically the same moment. So he's spreading his message through C-SPAN, but, but talk a little bit about the uh, the tapes.
0: Well, I mean, Newt Gingrich had used two technologies that at the time were cutting edge. It seemed ridiculous now, but right. But one of them was, as you say, C-SPAN cameras. He figured out that if you showed up late afternoon on the floor of the house, the cameras were on, and the C-SPAN was showing what was happening to the country, but there was nothing happening. So you step in, you fill the vacuum by giving what are called regular order speeches, and you start to basically spread the gospel because you have a ready-made platform that's available for you. So he does that. But he also uses cassette tapes, which just seems ridiculous now. But he figured out that there were all these Republican wannabes out there who wanted to be conservative Reagan foot soldiers, but they needed some instructions. They needed talking points, and they needed practical advice. So he figures out the way I can do this is I'll make cassette tape recordings of things Republicans should say and do and know if they're gonna run for office as conservatives. And he sends them out by the thousands across the country to grassroots young Republican politicians by and large, who are meant to take the cassette tapes, put them in their cars when they're going from event to event and listen to them. And they're basically getting how-to instructions and indoctrination from Newt Gingrich as they go through their days out on the campaign trail. And this turns a whole generation of young, republican conservatives into newt gingrich republican conservatives who are all you know basically playing by the same uh the same playbook so gingrich does all those things right and then at the same time the nra beca- starts to become a more political organization fueled on ironically by a democrat john dingle who was a outdoorsman very much guns rights uh, kind of democrat who basically convinces the nra they should defend gun rights not just talk about um you know outdoor conservation and hunting and fishing. Uh, so that happens. And then I think, crucially, the other organization that gets created in this period was the Federalist Society, which was, again, a completely novel idea, a uh, an organization of conservative uh, legalists, lawyers and, and law professors, which is created to kind of just uh, extend and um, and spread the conservative legal gospel. But what it then turns out uh, to, it turns out that it is an organization that is ready made to recruit federal conservative judges, and so the Federalist Society is created during this incubator period, and it starts to recommend people and then promote conservatives who are uh, nominated to be judges, federal and state judges, and now where we live today, the Federalist Society is the most important force pushing conservative judges onto federal benches and the Supreme Court uh, in all of Washington. And it is basically running that part of the operation for uh, the Trump White House and to some extent for Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. And all that started during the Reagan years.
1: And then you have another sort of funny story of the creation of of the Heritage Foundation in essentially Lynn Nofziger's office.
0: Yeah, this is, uh, again, you know, um, things that things that were going on beneath your, right under your nose, you didn't know at the time. But um, so th- there was a, a sense early on, and this was actually just before the Reagan years in the late 70s, uh, some people had a sense there needed to be a conservative machine in Washington to counter what was seen as the liberal machine. And one of the people who was interested in doing this uh, was Joseph Kors, who was the Coors Beer magnate from out in Colorado, very conservative, very interested in figuring out how to assert himself. And so he sends a letter to a, the, a Colorado senator uh, saying, I'm going to come to town. I would like to talk about how to spend some money to spread the conservative gospel. Um, and he has in mind probably spend giving a big check to the American Enterprise Institute, which was the one notable conservative think tank at the time. Um, This letter, though, is intercepted, um, and uh, Ed Fulner, among a couple of other people, um, is aware of this Coors trip. And so he basically hijacks the trip and arranges to meet with Joseph Coors um, and says, I've got a better idea. We should have a very aggressive, um, small, uh, kind of Green Beret, kind of conservative think tank in Washington that doesn't just put out white papers that people – Read and they put on their shelf, but that is out there creating action. And so he arranges to have a meeting with Joseph Coors uh, to talk about this idea. But Ed Fulner is a very smart guy. He realizes this meeting will have more impact if it doesn't happen in some you know restaurant in a hotel in downtown Washington, but if it happens in the White House where Richard Nixon was still um, in office at the time. Um, and Lynn Nofziger, who was a, a like-minded conservative from California, was working in the White House. So they arrange for this meeting to be held in Lynn Nofziger's office in the old executive office building to impress Joseph Kors. And they walk into the meeting and Joseph Kors says, well, these guys think I should give them some money to start a new conservative think tank, but I think there's already one in town, it's called the American Enterprise Institute, why don't I just give them my money? And they've arranged this ahead of time um, Lenofsky walks off to, over to his bookshelf in the old executive office building, pulls off pull the shelf an AEI study on something or another. He blows dust off of it, which he has uh, put on the, the study ahead of time to show that it. it's been sitting on my, de- sh- on my shelf gathering dust for low these many weeks and months, blows it off, and he says, this is what we do with AEI studies here. They just go on the bookshelf and, and they gather dust. You should give money to these guys. So Joseph Coors cuts a check to Ed Fulner. He goes out, he rents a townhouse on Capitol Hill, and the Heritage Foundation is born. And uh, it gets its name because one of Ed's partners is walking through his neighborhood in um, Fairfax County, Virginia, suburban Washington, and they're trying to figure out what to call it. And he sees uh, a group of uh, housing uh, division that's called the Heritage Homes. He says, well, that would be a nice name. So they call it the Heritage Foundation. And as they say, the rest is history. It is now a giant um, uh, multi-million dollar a year conservative think tank. It drove the Reagan agenda um, and it's still active today. And again, it had its seeds in this period when conservatives thought they had to bulk up, if you will.
1: But another thing that you see happen over the 1980s, and especially the late 1980s going into the 90s. Is that the language of politics begins to shift? It becomes a, a much rougher, darker kind of lingo that people are using. In part, Newt Gingrich, you know, is a leader in this, sort of coaching his acolytes on, on the way they should be framing these things.
0: Yeah, and and that's I think a big change. And it does it it, it is driven by Newt Gingrich more than anybody else. You know, uh, Ronald Reagan had a kind of you know, aw shucks quality about him. It was, uh, you know, he 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 would set his jaw sometimes and get angry and talk about welfare moms and things like that. But it, it didn't really last. And people um, didn't think of Ronald Reagan as, so, uh, as a fighter in the personal sense. <coughs> Excuse me. They, they thought of him as the kind of guy who by, you know, famously would go out and have a beer with the Democratic Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, after the day was over. That's a little bit exaggerated, but, you know, he was a kind of a, uh, a, a Republican who could get, wanted to get along with everybody and was basically liked even by people who thought he was shallow and a warmonger. Newt Gingrich arrived and said, um, conservatives and Republicans have been way too content for way too long to be the minority party. We've accepted that. We're kind of meek. We just sort of shuffle along and go along with the Democratic majority in Congress. And it's time for that to end. These people have taken advantage of us. They've held us down. We're going to fight them. And so he starts to basically develop a much more pugilistic style, and this happens in particular when he decides—he knew Gingrich decides to go after Jim Wright, who was then the Democratic Speaker of the House—and sets out to take him down, and does so by by accusing him of um, ethical shortcomings and particularly ethical crimes associated with a book that he had written, uh, for which he was uh, getting the proceeds from bulk sales that were being arranged by his office, basically um, political. Uh, political profiteering, if you will. And so he goes out and uses the C-SPAN time that we talked about earlier every day to go after Jim Wright and the Democrats in very harsh terms and basically um, turns the tenor of the conversation of Washington in a different direction. Um, and that has a lot of impact. It has impact within the Republican Party because basically uh, this, this all plays out in part while George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan's vice president, has become president. And he's also a very kind of uh, mainstream and almost genteel personality. Uh, Yet the party is slowly being taken over by the Newt Gingrich forces who are pushing a much, much harsher, uh, much more combative uh, view of the world. It's not inconsistent with the Reagan message philosophically, but tonally it's quite different. And um, I I talked with. with Rahm Emanuel, who was the mayor of Chicago and the White House chief of staff for Barack Obama, but who was also a leading member of the House for several years. And so he worked with and against Newt Gingrich in many ways, um, going back to the Clinton years. And he said, I think that the arrival of Newt Gingrich as the, uh, the main figure in the Republican and conservative movements was really when the Reagan era ended. Not when Donald Trump arrived, but when Newt Gingrich became basically the leading spokesman for the movement because he represented in, in Romsview, and I think there's something to this, he knew Gingrich represented such a departure from Ronald Reagan in tone and style, if not in substance, that that was the end of the Reagan period.
1: But then as we get into the early 90s, we begin to see a few figures who you write about who do in fact depart from what William F. Buckley and Ronald Reagan would recognize as conservative philosophy. You see, for the first time, I think those those few strains of, of populism showing up. In the party, could you talk about that and where that came from?
0: Yeah, and I think the important figure in that period um, and the 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 real canary in this coal mine was Pat Buchanan. You know, Pat Buchanan was a Nixon White House aide. He was a Ronald Reagan loyalist. Worked for Ronald Reagan. Loved Ronald Reagan. His email address is a variation on the Gipper. Um, so he was he was the ultimate Reagan soldier. But by the nineteen early nineteen nineties, he decides that. Um, the conservative message has missed a beat. It's not looking out enough for working class Americans. Um, and those are the people that, you know, have moved, have begun moving into the Republican party for cultural reasons. They're, they're for prayer in schools. They're against abortion rights. Um, they don't like liberals. Um, and so they're, they're moving into the Republican party and Pep Buchanan thinks they're, they are, they are being hurt by our economic message. We have a free trade message, but we're closing down factories so they can move to Mexico and we have to stop uh, that. And immigrants are moving in and ta- if not taking their jobs, driving down their wages. And we have to stop that too. And so he begins, and he's, Pat, Pat is quite eloquent about this. He says, I began to develop a different view of what uh, conservatism really is and should be. And it was very much early Donald Trump. It's anti-free trade, anti-NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. It's very much anti-immigration. It's anti-imports from abroad. Um, It's pro-American. It's uh, let's promote American industry. Let's have an industrial policy. These are all basically heresies to traditional conservatives. And Pat Buchanan begins pushing them. And he pushes them very hard when he runs for president in 92 and then again in 96. And at that point, he's a minority figure. And he's kind of dismissed as a cultural warrior uh, because he's also very much Um, pushing uh, the the agenda of of the religious right at the same time. And so I think a lot of people in our business dismissed him as nothing but a cultural warrior, somebody who was pushing a right-wing cultural social agenda. When in fact, I think the importance of Pat Buchanan was the economic message that he was pushing. Um, And it is From that point, and I think the 92 campaign when Pat Buchanan mounted a fairly serious run for president and really hurt George H. W. Bush, the incumbent of the Republican Party who was running for re-election then, really hurts him in that campaign. But you can draw a straight line from that Buchanan campaign in 1992 to Donald Trump in 2016. In fact, Bill McInturff, who's a Republican pollster who does polling for us at the Wall Street Journal uh, with our NBC News partners, uh, said to me at one point, Donald Trump is just Pat Buchanan with his own airplane. That's how similar the messages are. So that to me is the first sign that there is uh, not only a movement within the Republican Party that's turning more populist and nationalist, but also the potential for a spokesman to crystallize that movement. And Pat Buchanan was just a, a little ahead of his time, I think.
1: But around that same time, we also see the emergence of the celebrity billionaire Washington outsider as well. Talk a little bit about. You know Ross Perot, and and where does he come
0: in with all this? Well, you know Ross Perot. I mean, he really was Donald Trump before Donald Trump. I mean, so he's a he's a billionaire businessman, right? Check that box. Um, he's he's very um, uh, much a, a loner and an independent person who has no real political connections at all. So check that box off. Um, he's kind of a little paranoid and a little conspiracy minded. So you can check that box off. Um, but he has a very uh, uh, kind of uh, unlikely way to connect in, a, in in the vernacular of the working people. So you have a billionaire who talks to the working class people and is appreciated by them and who's not resented for his wealth, but admired for it. Well, that's a Donald Trump check too. And he brings the same message. He basically, he starts, interestingly, Ross Perot, by saying, well, the, the federal, federal spending is out of control. There's too much red ink. We got to get off. This is going to kill us. It's kind of very much a traditional, a kind of conservative, balance the books message. But Pretty soon, he moves on to a real nationalist anti-trade message. He becomes the person who uh, picks up the Pat Buchanan theme and talks about NAFTA as creating a giant sucking sound that's moving all of our jobs um, out of the U.S. to the South. And he picks up a real following there. And you and I both probably wrote about the Perot army in 1992 and then to some extent in 1996. Um, And he was pushing back against what was a bipartisan um, establishment belief in the virtues of free trade. Um, and uh, he uh, ran as an independent and then finally a third party uh, figure, um, got a fairly amazing 9%, 19% of the vote uh, in 1992, probably stops George H.W. Bush from getting a second term, um, really uh, sends a shiver down the spines of the business uh, constituency of the Republican Party and traditional conservatives. Um, but then ultimately uh, collapses because of his own personal flaws in many ways. He's, you know, he's paranoid. He can't keep advisors around. Um, he's, he's acerbic. He's a little scary to people. Um, but he has a message that, again, like Buchanan's, is kind of a sign of things to come. And, and um, interestingly, the parallels to Trump are all up and down the line. One of them was he figured out the way to um, find a soapbox for his views, was to go on table, cable TV constantly and talk about it. Well, that's Donald Trump, uh, you know, two decades later, uh, three decades later. Uh, it's the same playbook in many ways. It's just the country wasn't ready yet for Ross Perot. By 2016, it turns out it was kind of, kind of ready for Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, he, it, Ross Perot sort of was mesmerizing on TV in and, and kind of the same way. But, I mean, it was it was part... Politics, it was part performance art, sort of the way it was.
0: Yeah, and, and the other thing that was um, similar is I did, I did a fair amount of reporting in that 90, 1992 1996 period, um, and ultimately uh, Perot created the Patriot Party. And so these were people I got to know in 92 and 96 who became uh, kind of regular foot shoulders in the Patriot Party army up in, uh, up in Pennsylvania. Um, And these were people who felt their part of Pennsylvania had really been hurt by factories closing down uh, and moving overseas, particularly textile factories, but others, uh, and who really uh, believed that Ross Perot uh, had a point that he was right about the country hurting itself um, by letting free trade get in the way of what was good for regular Americans. But what was interesting to me, and uh, when I went back and looked at some of the stories I did during that period, they had the kind of the same feeling about Ross Perot eventually that a lot of Trump supporters have about Donald Trump, which is to say they saw his flaws. They recognized that he was kind of an egomaniac and that he was a little paranoid and that he was erratic and that they wished he'd talk nicer and wasn't so crude sometimes. All the things you hear Trump supporters say about Donald Trump, but they say, he's the guy who can carry the message. And so we'll put up with his flaws because we believe he's the messenger we need right now. And that was another interesting parallel that I, I realized going back between Ross Perot then and Donald Trump now. The people who followed him weren't starry-eyed and kind of mesmerized. They were hard-headed and realistic to, in, in many ways about the messenger they had chosen. They saw him as a flawed messenger, but the best one available.
1: So in part because of this sort of schism that's opening up, within the Republican Party, in part because George H.W. Bush also was not, you know, as as skillful handling the domestic economy as he was on the international stage. He loses to Bill Clinton uh, in 1992. Uh, Two years later, Newt Gingrich hasn't gone anywhere, and two years later, for the first time um, in 40 years, Republicans take over in the House with Newt Gingrich as their leader.
0: You know, and the, the Gingrich proposition, the, 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 the very firmly held Gingrich belief at that point was that there was, and the Reagan had proved there was, a potential conservative majority in the country. And that by, by all rights, Republicans should be in control of the House, if not the House and the Senate. Um, and that um, <clears throat> George H.W. Bush failed because he wasn't conservative enough so we would, we should have the White House. We don't, but we are going to make sure that we take back Congress. And p- people were very skeptical, as you know, in 1994, whether that was possible. But um, Newt Gingrich puts together a contract with America, which basically steals ideas out of, literally out of Reagan, Ronald Reagan's speeches, puts them together in a list of 10, um, doesn't mention the word Republican in the contract with America at all. So this is not a republic this is not to be seen as a Republican document, but as a, a conservative governing document for all of America, um, he lays that out and against the backdrop of a very kind of dis, dis, disorganized disjointed um, somewhat scandal ridden early Clinton White House and he says, We can govern, we can govern as conservatives and here 's my proof: I have a contract with you all, and we're, this is what we 're going to do. And so it goes from, he tries to take the conservative movement from being an ideological movement to a governing, uh, a platform. And he produces that platform. It's a contract with America and it works. They win back control of the house. Um, it's a shock to the entire system if, of, in Washington. Um, I couldn't tell then, and I still can't tell now whether it was a shock to Newt Gingrich that he succeeded or not. I kind of think it might've been, but he wouldn't admit that. Nonetheless, it happened. And it was an earthquake. You know, it was the, one of the biggest things that it, is the biggest thing that happened in this town since Reagan himself was elected. And so um, Gingrich has basically taken over as the successor to Ronald Reagan and the clear leader of the conservative movement. He, um, um, he then proceeds to dominate the agenda. And he and Bill Clinton become these two baby boomers who uh, are destined to collide. But before they collide, uh, and the real reason I think that... Um, that Newt Gingrich didn't succeed in establishing himself and his, uh, his leadership for the long run was he kind of got outmaneuvered by somebody who was an even smarter, better politician than him, who was Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton realizes, you know, Gingrich has a point. There's a, the country has moved to the right. And I'm going to, I'm, I've moved to the democratic party to the right a little bit. I'm going to move it more there. So he moves to the center and plants a, uh, a flag in the center in the years between 1994 and 1996 and basically takes over that part of the of the country and the ideolo- ideological spectrum um, by basically moving toward Gingrich not fighting him but co-opting him and that turns out to be very successful
1: yeah i mean i think people who weren't in washington at the time probably don't remember how this just completely reoriented everything at one point Bill Clinton actually stands up and declares the president is still relevant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he also declared, by the way, somewhere along the, the same uh, stretch, uh, the era of big government is over. I mean, right. so he basically decides I'm not I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to best Newt Gingrich by basically following him to the right, and he takes the party the Democratic Party there with him. Um, and it takes a while because you know Gingrich was the dominant force in town. I, I tell one of, the, one of the anecdotes that I throw into the book is that we at the Wall Street Journal during this period discovered, because we do readership surveys and reader, focus groups with readers, that in, in the old fashion of the Wall Street Journal, we have these line drawings of people in, rather than pictures. And if you put the name Gingrich in a headline and put a little line drawing of Newt Gingrich embedded in a story, the readership of that story immediately shot up. He was that fascinating to people that mesmerizing people who even people who hated Newt Gingrich were fascinated by him. And he had that, he had that, all that power at his disposal. Um, And to some extent he was co-opted by Clinton. And to some extent he squandered it by basically wearing people out and um, uh, overdoing it essentially.
1: So yeah, he, he overreaches by basically two back-to-back government shutdowns that the Republicans got all the blame for and I think that, um, you know, the, the polling suggested that the impeachment of Bill Clinton was also a big overreach. By, by August of 98, the polling suggested people wanted Clinton to be censured and then get back to government.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and overreach is the right word, Karen. That's exactly what happened. I mean, and, and you know, in, in a way, uh, Bill Clinton let him overreach. You know, Bill Clinton says basically, OK, you want to shut down the government? Um, you know you're going to take the blame for it, and it does It happens twice and the Republicans got the blame for it um and then I'm sure Bill Clinton didn't want to be impeached, but it was as it was an overreach. it was seen uh by Americans as basically a stupid fight between two baby boomers over over sex, not over public policy um and the 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 reaction to that was um a harmful one for for the because is seen as the guy who pushed it down that path. Um, And so by the uh, end of 1998, there's an election. Democrats actually pick up seats, contrary to what you expect in the middle of a second term of an incumbent president. Um, Newt Gingrich is blamed for this by many in his own party. He has his own ethical problems. And he's gone. At the end of 1998, he's gone. So four years after the contract with America, it's all over uh, in, in in, in that sense. And Newt Gingrich is sitting down in his home district in Georgia and Bill Clinton's still in the White House and his, his popularity is going up. And uh, Newt Gingrich says to somebody, I quote in the book, um, uh, he's quoted as saying, um, so Bill Clinton broke the law and perjured himself and he's in Washington in the White House and I'm down here. What happened? Well, that's what happened. <laughs> you know, so,
1: Well, so the with Gingrich's departure though, the, you know, the, The schisms within the Republican Party also start to disappear a bit. I mean, George W. Bush is very, very much an establishment candidate. He's then the governor of Texas. His fellow governors get together and sort of anoint him to go forward. He doesn't speak in those those sort of really harsh, hard-edged terms. He talks about compassionate conservatism. So for a while there, doesn't it sort of look like the Republican Party is starting to resemble what was recognizable for decades?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and more than that, a kind of an updated version of the Reagan version of the Republican Party. George W. Bush, unlike his father, was seen by conservatives as a genuine conservative. He, he walked the walk better. He talked the talk better. Um, conservatives actually believed he was one of them in a way they never thought his father was. Uh, he seemed more genuinely anti-abortion, for example. He seemed, um, and he, he was an evangelical, uh, you know, not an Episcopal and an evangelical Christian. Um, he came from Texas, not, he really was from Texas, not really from Greenwich, Connecticut. All those things kind of spoke to who he really was to conservatives and they embraced him. And interestingly, and, I, and I, I think one of the things I came to appreciate George W. Bush a little bit more in, in retrospect, because he came into office wanting to basically update the conservative message. Compassionate conservatism wasn't just a catchphrase. It was that. But it was more than that. It was an idea that conservatives need to just not be kind of in an ivory tower with a bunch of, go- of philosophies they got out of national the pages of National Review. It's it, it, We need to be connected with people more. And the conservatives have lost their way because they've lost their connection with people. And so we have to worry about what's happening to the poor uh, black kid in an inner city school. And we have a conservative answer for that it's school choice. And we need to get, uh, we need to uh, uh, update the, the welfare state, but not by being so cruel about it that we're just going to cut the welfare rolls. We have to create work opportunities. There was this idea that conservatism, the conservative message had become a little sterile and was disconnected from people. And so George W. Bush comes into office, and it's controversial because a lot of it is, is, you know, some conservatives think it's too much government power, and liberals are very skeptical. I think it's just an advertising slogan. But he starts in 2001, and he's moving down this path of reforming and updating the conservative message, and then 9-11 happens. And that pretty much ended that experiment because it becomes completely secondary to a whole new agenda.
1: And what Donald Trump would refer to as the era of endless wars begins.
0: Right. And, you know, it's interesting because George W. Bush campaigned by saying, uh, we, need to, we need to pay more attention to what's happening here. We should pay t- less attention to the Middle East. We should not engage in nation building. That was the phrase that was used at the time. That's a mistake. It's a waste of our resources. We have our own knitting to do here at home. That's what I'm going to do. So 9-11 happens and the neoconservatives within the Republican Party who are populating the national security positions in the uh, Bush administration and who, by the way, had somewhat lost their reason for existence when the Soviet Union went out of existence and when communism went into the dustbin of history, as Reagan predicted it would, suddenly they have a new reason to be they have a new enemy it 's Islamic extremism, Islamic terrorists um, and they basically seize the levers of power in many ways in the Bush administration and they push toward war in Afghanistan, which was a that was a consensus war but more controversially and fatally for George W. Bush to a war in Iraq, um, which was, you know, not necessary and clearly ill-advised. And um, uh, something I'm sure, who knows what George W. Bush would tell you if you had, if he was here and we shot him full of truth serum, but probably something he will ever wish he didn't get into.
1: So this brings us to the end of the Bush presidency, the second Bush presidency, and two gigantic things happen. I mean, one is the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression and all the disruption that that brings into people's lives. And the second is the election of a democratic president, uh, the first African-American one, which which fans some, some underlying racial tensions and one who has a very, very vigorous agenda, starting with health care. So how does that really set the stage for Donald Trump?
0: Well, uh, the first thing that happens is that the Republicans nominate in 2008 somebody who's a wonderful American and a, a hero and equipped for all kinds of things, but not equipped to handle an economic crisis. And that's John McCain. And in that 2008 campaign, he doesn't really have an answer to what had just happened, which was the financial industry meltdown. And Barack Obama and the Democrats do, because this is a, you know, a crisis like that calls for big government action and Democrats are ready for that. So Barack Obama wins. Um, and he sets out to do two things. One is to have a giant economic rescue uh, with a huge stimulus package, and the other is to reform the healthcare system. So he does one thing because it's absolutely necessary, and he does another thing because Democrats have taken control and they've been wanting to do this for 40 years, and they finally have their chance to do it, reform the healthcare system. Um, he sets out to do both at the same time. And um, by the way, does not deal with the immigration problem because that's just more than the traffic would bear. All those things are kind of fateful decisions. Um, and what it does is it's, it, it leaves conservatives just sputtering mad because billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of federal Money is going out the door. It's deficit spending. This all sounds familiar, right? <laughs> we have an economic- It's
1: benefiting Wall Street.
0: Benefiting Wall Street. We have an economic crisis. And the, the, these are all the things that Donald Trump has, is doing right now, uh, by the way. But Democrats are blamed for blowing up the deficit and for expanding the size of government. And then that's just make, makes conservative Republicans crazy. Um, and at the same time, they, there is underway what is seen as a giant government takeover of the healthcare system, which leaves conservatives sputtering that. They lose sight of the fact that a lot of the Obamacare, which is what it became known as, uh, basically embraced conservative principles. You know, uh, Insurance marketplaces are a conservative idea. The individual mandate that says everybody has to pull his or her own weight by making sure they're covered is a conservative idea. And and these are incorporated into Obamacare, but the whole package is seen as a giant government program. And for the purposes of the story that I'm telling, the main impact of that is it just leaves um, conservatives beside themselves. They can't believe this is what's happened. Uh, It's so far away from what they thought that the the country was headed towards in the, in the nineties, in the Newt Gingrich period. Um, And they, they, and and there's certainly a racial overlay to this. They cannot see Barack Obama as a entirely legitimate president. And it basically leaves uh, the, the congressional uh, Republican uh, leadership uh, set uh, out, uh, sets out to more than anything else, just make sure Barack Obama is not a two-term president.
1: But so the, first the party tries doing what it always does. They nominate the next guy in line, Mitt Romney, you know, traditional republican in so many ways except he also does a little bit of sort of tickling the immigration issue and when so many of them thought he was going to win and then when he loses the republican party commissions what's now known as the autopsy and they decide we have to become a more forward-thinking inclusive party we've got to bring in hispanics and be friendlier to women and um Donald Trump is sitting there up in Trump Tower, six days after the election, filling out the paperwork to to trademark the phrase, make America great again. Very backward looking and and really looking back at a, you know, white America, essentially. Um, What is he seeing that they're not seeing?
0: Well, so you have to remember that in the meantime, in 2009, 2010, the Tea Party erupts which is the, a real populist movement. It basically says, we are tired of the government bailing out guys on Wall Street and investment banks and people who overspend on, rich ha- on big oversized houses. Uh, I'm not getting anything. I lost my job. I lost my house. They're all getting bailed out. It's a genuine, genuinely angry populist uprising. But Republicans... Try to harness the power of that without really adapting to it. And so they nominate Mitt Romney, who's a wonderful guy and a great person and a great American, but maybe the least populist person you can think of to be the standard bearer in 2012. Um, and as you say, he tickles the the immigration, anti-immigration uh, sentiment to some extent, um, and and he loses. And again, Republicans are sputtering mad. They thought 2012 was a winnable election, that Barack Obama should have been beaten, and he wasn't, and it makes him crazy. And then the conservative movement the Republican Party at that point, as you suggest, hit the fork in the road, the big fork in the road. Where do we go from here? The party establishment says, let's go this direction. Let's say we need to be more inclusive. We need to be friendlier to Hispanics. We need to get more Hispanics votes because the dem- demography of the country is changing. Uh, we need to have a more, a more uh, soothing message on immigration. We need to have immigration comprehensive immigration reform. That's the path toward changing our message to adapt. And Donald Trump arrives uh, with a few others, Laura Ingraham among them, uh, and some others, and says the exact opposite of this. Nope, that is wrong. We should go this way. We should become not more inclusive, more friendly to immigration. We should go back to a more basic, almost 1950s style message that says, we're going to make America great again. We have to stop immigration, illegal immigration and reduce legal immigration. We need to stop trade agreements. We should become... We should recognize the Tea Party showed us that there's a populist move the in, mood in the country, and we're going to take advantage of it. The party hits that fork in the road between 2012 and 2015, um, and Donald Trump is kind of all alone out here, and everybody else is going there, and we saw what happened.
1: So so here we are. we're less than two months away from an election. We are in the home stretch. Um, Donald Trump's in the White House, not for one minute of his presidency has he been above 50% approval in the Gallup poll. Um, so where are we going? I mean, when you write volume two of we should <laughs> what is it that we should be paying attention to now? What, what, is, what is really gonna be tested now about Trumpism in this election?
0: Well, I think uh, it's hard to know for sure what the future of Trumpism is until you know what the outcome of this election, is, which is a cop out, but it's kind of an obvious answer. If there are former years of Donald Trump's consolidation of the Republican Party, Trumpism, nationalism, and populism is the Republican message, and a lot of people, the business community, for example, and traditional conservatives will have to decide where they go. Um, I think the key question right now is whether um, Democrats can have a message that uh, basically is reassuring enough to counter that. The odd thing about Donald Trump, um, and this, and I don't know if this is uh, specific to Donald Trump or if it's kind of generically true about where we are right now, is that people who don't like him are prepared to vote for him anyway. You know, you and I both grew up in a area in which lots of, we told people that people vote for somebody they like. They want to like who they're voting for for president because he's going to be in their living room through TV every night. That turns out not to be true with Donald Trump. And so people say, well, he's only got a uh, 42 or 43% personal approval rating, so he can't possibly win. Well, I just don't think that's true. He can win. I'm not saying he will, but he can because people who don't like him, dislike the way he operates, will still vote for him because um, they like his attitude. And... um, can Democrats counter that? And that's the the real question of of this campaign. It's hard to analyze because it's really not about ideology. I mean, the future of the conservative movement that I write so much about in the book and the future of the Republican Party depends on the outcome of this question, but it's not really an ideological question. What I find really interesting, and I I write about this in the book some, and I did excerpts for the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, whenever Trump leaves the scene, whether it's 2020 or 2024, there's a whole new generation of young conservative thinkers who are trying to figure out how do you come up with a new message? How do you combine the kind of the the unmistakable populist nationalist urges of the country that Trump has seized and capitalized on and understood with some more con- traditional conservative um, ways of thinking and, and, and basically protect American institutions in the process. And they're trying to come up with things like, for example, let, uh, let's support an industrial policy. Let's, let's get off the libertarian kind of message that says government can't get involved in the private sector and say, we do want to save manufacturing industries. We do want to save plants in this country. We're going to go out and help them. We'll use government power. And we'll do it in a conservative way with tax credits and things like that but we're going to acknowledge that government power can be used for good and take it away from more traditional kind of straight-laced conservatism. That's where I think things will probably head in the post-Trump era. But if we're not yet in the post-Trump era, um, there will be only one person that matters in the Trump era, however long it lasts, and that's Donald J. Trump.
1: Are are you struck by, I think the, the, Trump was such an unconventional candidate that there was a, a, sort of mindset as he took office that that may have been the way he campaigned, but once he gets into this enormous office that he, and with all the the responsibilities he's going to have on his shoulder, he is going to have to govern like a much more conventional president. The, you know, sort of cliche is he's going to have to grow into the office, but he's very much the same person as... Was running in 2016. Does that
0: surprise you? Very much so. And you know, I was like many others. I was wrong about many things about Trumpism. That was one of them. Um, that uh, um, you know, that you, you assumed. I assumed he would adjust, and he hasn't. He has. He's become even more Trump-like. I would say over time. And I wrote for the journal not long ago that you, you can't just put Trumpism back in the bottle. And it it doesn't mean that it will be exactly this way forever, but he has changed things. He's changed the Republican party in ways that will be lasting. And he's changed the way people operate as president. It doesn't mean everybody will, every succeeding president will be on Twitter 45 or 50 times a day, but there's a way of communicating with the public. There's a style of uh, communicating. There's a kind of a tone um, that he's, that he's created. That's not going to go away overnight. Um, he has, ba- I mean, love him or hate him, you have to say he's, he has turned the uh, or, or uh, bent the presidency to his style more than the other way around. And I did not see that coming. And I'm still surprised um, regularly by how much he does that and how much people accept that. I mean, I honestly thought that people would rebel at the idea that you could have a president who says things the way he says them and that you could have somebody who... <clears throat> Diminishes the currency of a presidential statement to the to the point he has, which is to say, he says things for effect, not because they're literally true. Um, I thought that, that that would be so jarring to people that they wouldn't accept it. But you know, a lot of people don't accept it, but you know, a lot of people do, and that's not going to that's not going to just go away overnight. Um, I I think it'll. There's only one Donald J. Trump, but you know, he has he has changed the institution um, in ways I wouldn't have anticipated.
1: And what about some of the norms that we've expected of our presidents? I mean, will presidents in the future release their tax returns or shut down their private businesses when they go into, or, or he had changed those things that we had all assumed? Were?
0: I I think, I think there is a, beneath Donald Trump in the Republican Party, um, and, and, and for the most part in the Democratic Party, I think there's a desire... To return to some of those norms and to strengthen institutions. Now, again, it's not going to go away. Trumpism has changed some of these patterns of political life in America forever. But I think that people in both parties quietly worry about institutions. You know, what about the um, what about the separation of powers? What about limited executive power? What about the FBI? What about the National Security Council? What about the independence of independent agencies like the FDA and the CDC? I think that quietly some of that will be restored because. Uh, I think that people in both parties are uncomfortable with some of those, um, the shattering of some of those norms, but not all of them, not all of them. I think you will probably have um, institutions like the state department will feel more beholden to the president and less independent for a while after this, because that's what Donald Trump has done, and that's what a lot of people say they want, and we'll see how it lasts. But I do think that underlying all this, there is a kind of a level of concern about uh, the stability and future of basic institutions uh, to an extent that I think some of that will probably you know, turn back in the other direction.
1: Well, Jerry, it's, it's hard to believe, but we are out of time here. I just think this has been such a fascinating conversation, and you have written such a fascinating book, so congratulations.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you. And uh, it's, it's been an interesting period to live through and then to chronicle. So I was glad to have the chance. And thanks for the conversation. Great. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email
1: at podcasts at c